Hi, and welcome to The Intersect. I'm Eric Tischler. Apt Associates tackles complex challenges around the world, ranging from improving health and education to assessing the impact of environmental changes. For any given problem, we bring multiple perspectives to the table. We thought it would be enlightening and maybe even fun to pair up colleagues from different disciplines so they can share their ideas and perhaps spark new thinking about how we solve these challenges. Today I'm joined by two of those colleagues, Russ Jones and Mark Laurie. Russ is a specialist in geographic information systems, remote sensing, and cartography. He has more than 24 years of experience providing extensive mapping, analysis, and modeling support in the areas of natural resource damage assessments, ecology, sociology, economics, and climate change. Mark is a water resources planner with a range of expertise in resource and strategic planning, policy and risk analysis, risk communication, and collaborative decision-making methods. His work has addressed topics including water supply and drought, coastal and riverine flood risk, and ecosystem restoration in multiple regions across the U.S. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, Eric. It's great to be here. Let, Mark, let's start with you. Uh, we've seen a lot of major flood events in recent years, and we just saw one recently in Michigan. What can you tell us about the trends we're seeing? Yeah, it's interesting. We have seen, you know, especially headline-grabbing events over the last, I don't know, five or seven years or something like that. I was looking up some numbers getting ready to talk with you today, and one of the ones that always amazes me is NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, maintains a database of billion-dollar disasters over history. And I don't know, there's a few hundred events in that database. The five biggest disasters in history were all coastal storms that were primarily flood events, and they all occurred in the last 15 years. Wow. So we're definitely seeing more and more big damaging events in recent years than we used to in the past. The interesting thing about that, that is that the temptation is to kind of say, okay, that's got to be climate change, right, because climate change is running apace and it's in the news. We think that the biggest driver of the events so far is that we tend to continue building houses and buildings in places that are prone to floods. In the long term, we do expect those events to get more frequent and more severe, and that might become the bigger driver of those trends in the future. So those are kind of, I don't know, the bigger trends that I was thinking about as we were getting ready for this um, and, and, and thinking about what's, you know, what's driving these flood damages that we've been seeing. One way or another, the flooding's increasing. You're saying we're going to see more of it. What can we be doing to prepare you know, for mitigation, remediation? What are some tools that are available to us to help offset this? I guess, boy, that's, there's a, it's a complicated problem, right? So one, you have to understand as best we can um, how likely are big floods along different river bodies and coasts, right? So there's a physical element of how likely are the storms, how often do they come, and when they do come, where does the flood water go over the landscape? Then you need to understand, well, where are people and buildings located within those areas that are likely to get inundated by floods? Um, where do we have houses? Where do we have apartment buildings? Where do we have critical infrastructure? Um, once you can marry those two up, and then obviously that kind of lends itself to a geospatial GIS analysis, um, then you can start to think about, well, what are our options for doing something about that? Um, in the past, you know, we tended to rely on big structures to try to control where the floodwaters would go. I forget the exact number, but I think in the United States, we've spent quite a few tens of billions of dollars on um, on infrastructure like big dams and levees that would prevent water from going in places where we don't want it to go. I think increasingly there's a recognition that we got we have to, in addition to that, um, we have to do a few things. One, we have to better restore and maintain the infrastructure that exists. So you heard about that flood in Michigan, uh, was that two weeks ago? That was caused by a dam, an old dam that failed due to extreme floods. We also have to get a little bit smarter about um, building a little bit less 
um, and building a little bit smarter in places that are very prone to flood so that when one does happen, uh, the damages are a little bit less, maybe they're a little bit easier to repair and restore, fewer people are affected. Um, and we're starting to see that increase just a little bit. It's gaining momentum because we realize that's a more cost-effective way to deal with this problem in certain areas. So uh, you mentioned geospatial GIS analysis, and it sounds like that'd be handy here. And just so happens that Russ is on the call with us. Uh, <laughs> Opportunist. <laughs> Russ, do you want to talk to us about what GIS can bring to this? Sure. So um, GIS is a, you know, is a technology that we can use for, you know, basic mapping or analysis or even modeling. And, um, you know, as we discussed, it can be used uh, for a variety of, of you know, disciplines. Um, anything that you can think of that has a spatial component, you can use GIS for. So in terms of flooding and climate change, um, we've had, you know, since I've been uh, doing this, I've been working on climate change and flooding impacts for probably the last 20, 24 years. And the way that we do this is uh, we're able to take projections from global climate models, for instance. And, you know, there are, you know, like 40 different models that different agencies, uh, different countries around the world have produced to try to model all the physical uh, interactions of, you know, the atmosphere and oceans and coupling that to look at, okay, well, how are things going to be changing in the future? So when you heat up the air, it'll hold more water. When it's released, you get more extreme events, that type of thing. So we're able to use some of this uh, global climate model data and pull that out into GIS and it's spatially explicit so that you know, for, you know, any given area on the earth, what are the models saying in terms of how the temperatures and precipitation and extreme precipitation patterns going to change. And then we can throw that onto the landscape along with our known floodplains and the topography and kind of get an idea where we might see increases or decreases in flooding, um, you know, through time. And along with that, we also know where the infrastructure is. There's a lot of wonderful new data sets that show where all the housing footprints are. Um, and so we can kind of get an idea as to what is the relative risk level for any particular area that you're in, uh, both now and, in, and going into the future. Um, and then what kinds of damages might we be expected to see? Um, we can run that kind of quantification through our GIS system. Um, so taking these flooded areas, overlaying that with our building footprints. And then Mark will take information on, um, you know, what are the building values? What's the, you know, how many stories is it? How much, you know, what are the depth damage functions? So if you have a certain depth of inundation, what does that mean in terms of damages? And, um, you know, how much is it gonna cost to replace that? That type of thing. So GIS is really well suited um, to, looking at things like impacts from flooding and what are the potential adaptation options that we could use. In other words, if you, you might wanna say, well, let's model where it flooded and what kind of levee system could we put in that might prevent that in the future? So, um, you know, before you even get down to the Army Corps of Engineers, you can do a lot of upfront work to look at relative risk and potential adaptation options that you might uh, wanna take. 
Great. So, Mark, you want to talk a little bit about that? How you know how you could use that data, or or what kind of data should we be collecting that we aren't already collecting, uh, either or both? Yeah. I mean, well, so there's there's a number of things that would be great if we did a better job collecting data that would make you know, that process that that Russ described. Um, it would give us better tools to do that. So, you know, one thing is it turns out we talked earlier about trends in flood damages and flood flood losses. It turns out we don't actually do a great job of tracking that. So. A lot for a lot of flood events, it tends to be a little bit of a back of the envelope kind of thing by usually by meteorologists, especially when they're small events. They kind of, um, you know, they might call the mayor, they might kind of call an insurance agent, say, yeah, yeah, we think it was seven million dollars. So it would actually help a lot if we had more precise estimates of what those damages are. We have done a very good accounting on a couple of big events, like for example, um, Hurricane Harvey in Houston, five, almost five years ago now, four years ago now. Um, they did do a much more detailed kind of assessment of just what was damaged and why and what was, what was the total loss across different kinds of buildings and different kinds of sectors. You know, other data that has been difficult, but as, as Russ mentioned, is getting much better, like literally by the day, um, is, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, here's an estimate of where the water is going to go. And you've got, a, you've got some hydrology and hydraulic models. And you've got a model of what the landscape looks like, a digital elevation model. And you can say, okay, here's in, in this particular kind of storm, here's the parts of the landscape that are going to get wet due to this flood. Um, until the last couple of years, it's been very difficult to know exactly where are the buildings out there. Like nobody was responsible for having an, uh, an authoritative inventory of homes and apartment buildings and businesses, and car dealerships, and whatever else. Um, we had very rough estimates, I guess I would say. Russ mentioned that, I don't know, over the, is it probably the last couple of years that um, the building footprint data set was developed, Russ? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Microsoft, and I have no idea how they do this, but they have some sort of artificial intelligence process that processes satellite imagery and is able to identify buildings on the landscape. And then they'll put a little polygon, a little square, and say, that's a building, that's a building, that's a building, that's a building. So now we have this data set of, I don't know, mil millions of buildings across North America or across the United States. So that tells us, I don't know, with 95% accuracy or better, where every single building is. It doesn't tell us what kind of buildings they are. So it matters if you flood a warehouse on a Saturday night versus a nursing home on a Tuesday morning, right? But those two impacts are very, very different. So um, we've been working on some processes to take parcel tax databases from local counties and states. Um, some real estate stuff, like literally just using Zillow, although they make it a little hard to use some of that data, but, um, but we use some of it in, in ways that they allow to be able to say, okay, this shape, this building footprint on the landscape, that's a, that's a Walgreens. And this one over here is a multi-story apartment building. And this one over here is a car dealership. So we're starting to do that. And we've recently learned that some federal agencies have scaled up a process like that to try to um, come up with those attributes for all building footprints. And that'll, that'll really help us understand what kinds of buildings are likely to be exposed, which of them are going to be associated with greater direct damage, like just, you know, the building getting knocked over or business losses, right? If a car dealership or a restaurant or an office building has to shut down for weeks or a month, that's a big loss to the people who work there. And so that, I think, is going to help us get more precise, better estimates of what's at risk so that we can make better decisions about um, how are we going to adapt to that. You know, some of those some of those buildings, maybe we move them. Maybe we say, you know what, it doesn't make sense to have 
um, a nursing home in a place that's going to flood every 30 years down the road. Or maybe it doesn't make sense to have a school located in a place like that. But maybe it's okay if we have a, um, a rec center or a boat uh, marina or whatever, you know. So it, we can start to get smarter about some of those decisions and making some of those changes. And I would also um, say, you know, along with that, we have lots of different socioeconomic uh, data sets and demographic data sets that we're able to um, combine and look at areas that are high density um, or low income where where people might not have the resources to get, uh, you know, to take preventive action. Um, and we can also combine it with like, where are the evacuation routes? So if you have an area that uh, might be vulnerable to flooding, what are the evacuation routes that are there? Might those be impacted by the flooding as well? And if they are impacted, what are the alternative routes? So these are some some of the other things that you can use GIS for is to look at disruption. You know, if you have an area that's cut off, um, how how much of a detour, how much time would that take? Um, and then Mark can throw that in with the rest of the demographic information and socioeconomic information to say additional impacts that might be caused that are indirect. Um, so very powerful, you know, set of of tools that you can use in a myriad of ways. You know, just have to be creative on what you're doing. Uh, great, and, and and clearly you guys are are thinking about this creatively. Um, before I let you go, let me go backtrack. So we've talked about sort of how it can help plan for a response. Mark, you were alluding to planning. You know, almost like civic planning, urban planning for building, et cetera. So sort of that in mind, looking ahead, what are some ways? You know, as we've noted, the trends are worsening. What are some things both of you would like to see local, state, federal government do to help better plan both for a response and then plan to sort of take into account the worsening of, you know, events, you know, as your municipality grows, as your state grows, as the country grows? So one of the things that I would like to see is, is obviously in my discipline, more use of uh, optimized location of services that may be needed. Um, so for instance, you, you have the ability in GIS to say, okay, if we have say an emergency center, hospitals, or we have um, some evacuation center, where can we optimize the location of that to serve the most people that might be threatened or under threat in the future? So you can, you can calculate these service areas for any particular facility or, um, you know, be it emergency management or uh, restoration centers or grocery stores or whatever it happens to be that you're looking for. You can say, what is the service area around this in terms of how long would it take people to drive their car here or walk here or whatever mode of transit that you wanted to have? And then what are the areas that might be cut off from that? You know, so if you did put an area, put a, a new a facility in some location, uh, you might want to add some additional roads or figure out additional ways of accessing that so that if you did have an event come in to take that out, those people could still be able to get to that resource. So I think just smarter use of some of the, the geospatial technology for planning purposes and knowing what the upcoming threats might be. Um, and I, Mark, you can probably add on to that. Yeah, I mean, the thing that in, in Russ, you and I are wrestling with this on a daily basis with some of the projects we're, we're working on. You know, when we, do, when we do analyses that are just meant to provide the analysis, 
it's one thing to deal with uncertainty. But when you start getting down to a government person or a property owner or community making decisions, that uncertainty gets really, really important. And there's a ton of uncertainty in this stuff. And when we do these studies, you know, there's uncertainty about how the storms are going to change 10, 20, 100 years from now. There's uncertainty about where in the landscape the water is going to go. There's uncertainty about how much development is going to occur in any given location and therefore what's likely to be exposed. And it's hard for communities to make decisions with that degree of uncertainty. We see it a lot in the face of climate change. So I would like to see, um, you know, in addition to sort of increasing the sophistication of our analysis and the way we use that analysis to make decisions, I'd like to see communities and government agencies um, choosing adaptation pathways that are a little bit more flexible. So, you know, it used to be 50 years ago or 80 years ago, we thought, you know, whether or not to build a billion dollar levy was a relatively simple decision. Do some analysis and if the benefits exceed the cost and there's enough money, you build it. But now it would be interesting to um, look at um, sort of approaches that take into combination multiple features. Maybe you don't build a billion dollar levy, but you build a levy one third that size that does protect some part of the landscape. But then you're also saying, okay, you know what, we're going to hold off on this new commercial development until we get better data about how storms are changing or um, we're going to build the levy in a modular way so that we've got the ability to add to it later in, in a more cost-effective approach. So a lot of these new kinds of approaches are getting, I would say they're getting attention and they're getting tested. I mean, this is really at the forefront of like, you know, what, what engineering academics are researching and trying to implement. And I would like to see more, uh, more demand really for that from the community side, like just accepting the fact that they're going to have to approach things a little differently than they used to. Um, and using the data to to kind of take that sort of incremental adaptive approach. I think that would be very helpful for for, uh, for flood risk and flood losses in the U.S. and around the world. Great. Well, I love that both of you are, you know, thinking down the road in your respective fields and, and that you're working together daily. That's a nice, that's a nice intersect, as we like to say here on The Intersect. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, thank you both for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you, Rick. I'm happy to be here. And thank you for joining us at The Intersect. Mm-hmm.